From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. So we've been touring this since January of last year, and it's probably been the biggest Irish tour that I've done. Uh, That's saying something. Yeah. Um, For a man who's done how many nights in Vicker Street? Uh, eight. In Canada, there was this whole humour movement, comic movement of people called Les Antartistes, and then maybe in slightly bad taste, Al-Qaeda, these groups calling themselves who were engaged in political pying. We just put out the call to Limerick Women to see, is this something you'd like to do? And over 400 of you were crawling in the window. The musings on the news or newsings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show began with Oliver Callan sitting in for the man with time in his hands on a Friday night, listing a lot of gigs over the next while, and then getting on to the lack of political news in the air. Not much political news going on around the place, I've noticed for someone who has an eye on these kind of things. And the star has a spotlight on justice, and you've got a very, very delighted Helen McEntee, uh, the Minister for Justice, has returned yesterday back to work from maternity leave. She says it's good to be back at it. And she's back at office there uh, following the birth of her second child, Vincent, in December. Vincent is kind of an old school name, isn't it? I know somebody recently gave birth to uh, Brendan, um, which I think is kind of cool to have those um, old trendy names, except when people try to shorten them. Then Vinny becomes kind of, oh yeah, that's a bit more modern. And Bren is the Dublin option, isn't it? Uh, although that just gave me flashbacks to Ken. Sorry, uh, back on track here. Um, Helen McEntee, back at work. And there's a picture here in the star where you can see on her desk where all the important documents are there. It's the Minister. It's the Department of Justice. And uh, there's a page that's completely covered in crayon scribblings from, um, I presume, the first child. That would be uh, Michael, who would be two years old. Yeah, two years old. Be scribbling on things already for sure. And uh, the fun bit for me is that Simon Harris is in the picture because Simon Harris stepped in, you see, as Minister for Justice. Very, very important. Very important, of course, to be Minister for Justice. Also, my other job, my other job, who cares, whatever it is, justice, justice. Uh, Block, block, block to anyone who doesn't say, who doesn't like what I do. And he's smiling there next to Helen McEntee, (laughs) delighted to be handing the reins to the uh, more high-profile gig. What would they say? They'd call it a pained expression, wouldn't they? (laughs) In the kind of tabloid, uh, a forced grin. Uh, for Simon Harris there, you know, um, uh, block, block, block is what his eyes are saying. But no, I'm sure he's delighted. He's delighted for his colleague. What was it Gore Vidal said? The, the worst thing in life is to watch a friend succeed. <laughs> I'm not saying that of Simon Harris. I don't want to be blocked by Simon Harris. Uh, but um, there you go. Good stuff. Good stuff all around. Uh, and that's the political news, I guess. On to Tay-Tay news then. Uh, oh, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift... Um, is in the news all the time anyway. Uh, but importantly, Forbes magazine lists the uh, the richest women in music. And now Taylor Swift has moved up to being the second richest self-made woman in music. She has an estimated net worth now of $740 million. Ah, capitalism. It's just great. Very, it's just really working out for everyone. Uh, 33-year-old karma singer has now surpassed Madonna who is only worth $580 million. And Beyonce is behind Madonna at $540 million. She's only got a half a billion. I mean, what's she doing? Too many holidays. Um, so she occupies... OK, so she's the... Oh, of, of, outside of music, America's richest self-made woman of all time. Um, you've got... Um, she's number 34 there. And uh, Oprah Winfrey is at um, number 13. And Diane Hendricks is number one. She owns all of the uh, roofing materials in the US. Didn't expect that one. Uh, but anyway, uh, what am I saying here? Oh, yes, yeah, so number one, the most, the richest self-made woman in music is Rihanna, 
Bit of a cheat though because most of her money comes from Fenty Beauty, the makeup company. Uh, she has a fortune of 1.4 billion, which is nearly double Swift's figure in the second place. You're not going to catch her unless she brings out the makeup. Really sell out, really, really sell out and do that. Not the makeup. Um, is that a reference I didn't get? Mm-hmm. That's politics and makeup covered. Now, on to appalling white men. If you have teenage boys in the house, you've probably heard of Andrew Tate, the uh, so called social media influencer, and you're terrified that they're going to perhaps come upon him on the internet and his very, very toxic influence. Um, of of Andrew Tate. He runs an online class, basically, and all this kind of, um, you know, toxic masculinity is the word that comes to mind. A class, basically, for for treating women terribly and how you should use them as your playthings and so on. But anyway, uh, uh, the the justice has been slowly catching up with him and he was detained. Uh, um, He's insisting, basically, he's been cleared of these accusations of organised crime and human trafficking that he's been accused of by the, um, the, the, the authorities in Romania. He's a Romanian originally, but uh, went to the United States and he's a British US citizen. Uh, he's 36 years old. He ins- said, he's insisted he's a force for good in the world during a charged interview, it's fair to say, with BBC. And um, he's, been, he's been kind of, well, what's what he's been accused of? Okay, so the country's director for investigating organised crime and terrorism said it has identified six alleged victims in a human trafficking case against him. The victims were allegedly subjected to acts of physical violence and mental coercion, so the coercive control, and also sexually exploited. And so he's done this interview uh, with the BBC and you get an example of a man who's used to being in control or, you know, saying whatever he likes without any challenge or, or having any of his claims that he claims are facts, having those facts interrogated. This is what happens when a turn-up, basically, meets reality. And I'm describing women who have spoken to the BBC at length Sophie doesn't exist. and other media ex- organisations about what they say is emotional manipulation and coercion. And I'm quoting back to you your own words where you describe They're not my words. coercion They're words and emotional fa- manipulation. The words you found on the internet and Sophie doesn't exist. On your so website, move on to the next in your voice. Move on to the next subject. No, I think I'll stick on this one for a minute. So there's other places in that same website where you say you get girls to fall in love with you and they do it because they love you, because they want to do what you say. Convincing women to take part in some kind of business arrangement doesn't work long term because they're emotional. You've got to get them to fall in love with you. That's coercion. That's emotional manipulation. That's abuse. What you've found are clips from the Internet, some text from the Internet, and you're going to sit here and tell me that that's the reason I should... Your website, your words. It's not my website. Yes, it is. No, it's not. And that's um, the BBC journalist Lucy Williamson, I, I believe, was in, in charge of, of, of that one. And she gave, him a good, she gave him a good going over. And I think that's, that's exactly what happens when you get those kind of butthead comes to mind, isn't it, against that? The unpleasantness that is Andrew Tate poisoning the newsings this morning. Let's move on, shall we? Much nicer newsings next, because it's almost Barbie time. Barbie's World, which is going to be uh, in Greta Gerwig's latest film, uh, it's coming out on the 21st of July. And this is what we would say is the hotly anticipated movie of the year. Uh, Well, apparently the New York Post tells us this morning that creating Barbie's World in the Margot Robbie movie required so much pink paint that it has caused an international 
shortage. So um, this is a, what, what we call on the internet now, the suffix is core. So, you know, it's Barbie core. So with Barbie core sweeping celebrity fashion trends and everything, uh, it's probably going to interfere with interior decorating plans uh, because oh, pink is already very popular for um, certainly children's bathrooms, ice cream shops, but it leaks into bathrooms, bedrooms and so on. And uh, it's a, this is a very fluorescent shade of pink. And it already had an international shortage parity when Barbie was being filmed. Now it's been completely... It's going to be completely run out. The world has run out of pink uh, because of the Barbie film is what's going on there. Um, ice cream shops is what I was saying. I was thinking of ice cream parlours, but I couldn't say parlour because I know it's an American thing, but also parlour is, is a word that sort of I associate with milking parlours. And I, I was I was straight back into milking cows many years ago. It's kind of the ultimate mono <laughs> nightmare. Uh, certainly weren't pink walls in the milking parlour. That's that's for sure. If there was an EU grant for it now, we would have painted them pink. We would have painted the whole thing pink. We'd painted the cows pink if we wanted to. Possibly only Oliver Callan could go from Barbie core to the Monaghan Milk Co-op in less than 90 seconds. Hmm. This next bit might go some way to explaining why. Uh, Irish Daily Star, what's the star? Okay, there's a toy beetle has sold for over €8,000. Now, I'm interested in this because it's a Matchbox model. Did you ever play with the Matchbox things? I was mad into these cars. Um, Santi brought me a collection of 30 Matchbox things in a huge, huge box and it was the size of me when I was probably five or six and uh, like little Ford Escorts and little Jaguars and stuff. Um, uh, so this is a toy beetle. Yeah, so it's a Monte Carlo rally plate. Oh, okay. Sold for 8000 which is 10 times its estimate. Uh, so people go mad for all these collectible things. And it was a whole collection of, of little toy cars that went up to 153,000. And um, what else was there? Little Maseratis. No, I remember kind of very plain cars in mind. Very, very normal cars. It was in a Morris Minor with a split screen, which was an old thing. And uh, maybe not a Ford Cortina, but a Granada would have been it. Actually, next to that story, I see the first Football All-Ireland final medal, um, which is 1888, was sold for 32,500. Uh, it's nine carat gold uh, at an auction um, yesterday, or a couple of days ago. Uh, it was won by Jeremiah Kennedy of Limerick Commercials back uh, They beat the Young Irelands of Louth on a scoreline of 1-4 to 3 points. Sounds like a Donegal County final, doesn't it? And that's the end of the musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, from this morning's Ryan Tuberty Show with Oliver Callan. Ireland will miss its emissions reduction targets by a long way, according to a new report from the EPA, unless we make significant cuts to our emissions between now and 2030. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Saiv O'Neill, coordinator of the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition, spoke to Claire about what the report means for us all. And Claire started by asking her if she was surprised by the findings of the report. I was surprised because last year the EPA found that the Climate Action Plan then in place would deliver 28% emission reductions. And even though we have a much more detailed prescriptive Climate Action Plan in place now since uh, last December, they reckon that will only deliver 1% more emission reductions by 2030. So we're still way off the target set out in the climate law and the carbon budgets. So clearly a lot more is going to have to be done if we're going to meet those targets. So what does that say about our climate strategy here? Well, it says a number of things. Uh, for a start, there is always going to be a lag between policies and their implementation. And even when they're implemented, 
it's a lag again before you see the emission reductions. So that's inevitable. And that was why the Climate Change Advisory Council uh, created a carbon budget for the first period that was a lot more flexible and generous than the second carbon budget. Uh, but notwithstanding that, um, the the reality is that there's been very slow implementation of some key measures and some of the policies and proposals are still incoherent and not actually driving emission reductions at all. Uh, for example, the growth in data centres is driving up electricity demand, which means we need more gas and coal on the electricity system to balance the grid. And we still have uh, an expanding dairy herd. So as long as we have policies that are encouraging the growth of emissions, we're going to see these targets missed, no matter what policies and plans are in place uh, otherwise. So that's the incoherent part. It's the left hand and the right hand working at odds. Exactly. So we have an implementation gap and we also have a kind of policy incoherence. Um, Certainly in some of the sectors, the policies that are set out are are clearly not ambitious enough. So the EPA have identified, for example, in agriculture, that if everything was implemented that they were able to model, you'd only see uh, emission reductions between 4 and 20%. Uh, when in fact the target, the legally binding target is a 25% reduction. But even within that, if you see emissions rising because of herd uh, expansion, um, that that puts those uh, targets in doubt again. And there's growth in certain areas as well, sort of um, in industry, for example, the use of cement is expected to increase by 5% and emissions from energy industries, uh, even the even though we have a high uh, rate of renewables penetrating the grid, if demand for electricity continues to grow uh, too fast for the system to catch up, essentially we'll have more gas and coal uh, to balance the grid and that drives up emissions from that sector as well. These are very tricky, difficult problems to deal with. What kind of direct policy changes do you think could be made more rapidly now? Well, absolutely. I think we need to be a lot more honest with the public that uh, that these targets are not just essential because they're legally binding, but they actually bring co-benefits. So we have to do more to bring people on board. Um, I certainly think we need to be hitting the pause button for more data centres. It makes no sense to add more data centres when our grid isn't able to cope. Uh, We need to expand renewables much more rapidly. Now, there's a lot of modelling done on the, uh, the, the targets that are already in place, but these are going to be in doubt unless we streamline the planning processes and ensure that Onboard Panola particularly is equipped with the skills and the resources it needs to process applications in a timely fashion. Um, I think we should be rolling out an exit strategy for farmers who want to reduce or retire from from dairy farming particularly and really do everything possible to stop the growth in dairy herd uh, emissions. Um, The Department of Agriculture estimate that the beef suckler herd is going to decline all on its own that that's kind of an inevitable, but that policy interventions are required to manage the uh, emissions and environmental impacts on the dairy side. And then finally, I think we need to be really taking a hard look at the construction sector, because as long as we're building houses and more you know, physical infrastructure with cement, we're going to see emissions rising from that because of the the, the, the kind of process of making cement releases uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So we need to shift over to more timber-based construction uh, and reduce the embodied carbon in the new houses that we have to build. We spoke about 
timber built homes on the programme last week and we learned that they are more expensive, particularly if you're building a one-off project. You're looking at increased costs of up to 15%. That's very difficult for people to take. Well, I imagine that it's a question of scale. Um, so once the skills are there in the construction sector to uh, to rely on timber as a default uh, type of uh, building material, that the costs will come down or at least balance out with what they're used to. A lot of it is just based on what builders are used to working with. And when those skills are there, uh, they and, and when we have access to Irish timber as well, which is another issue, um, the, the costs should come down. Mm. Again, you know, going back to the fact that these are really difficult and tricky problems. I mean, those three options that you've outlined there, pausing data centres, it's probably the most doable of them all. That's a stroke of a pen. But the exit strategy for farmers, you know how difficult that whole debate around farming, around reducing the herd has become. Uh, We've got urban versus rural calls for a new political party and so on. That is becoming increasingly tense, that debate, isn't it? It has, but I find the uh, debate is often a bit skewed. Like, for example, the farming organisations have repeatedly called for measures that are voluntary, that they be fully compensated and that there is provision made for the entry of new younger farmers into the system. Now, the Department of Agriculture's paper, which I haven't read, I've just read newspaper reports about it, which was, you know, a kind of draft proposal for an exit scheme, did all of those things. It proposed an entirely voluntary scheme The levels of compensation were, according to my sources, quite generous and would incentivise some farmers to retire on that basis. And it would create the opportunity for younger farmers to get into dairying by creating a little bit of uh, kind of redundancy in the system there and scope for them to get in. Um, So in all three areas, it ticked the boxes. So I do not understand why uh, there is more controversy about this. This is a welcome initiative and it is going to have to be rolled out, frankly, because if we do not address our agricultural emissions, we are not going to get to grips with water pollution, biodiversity loss and greenhouse gas emissions. It makes up over a third of our national greenhouse gas emissions and it's Environmental impact is just getting very serious now on a number of different fronts. So urgent action is required. Saiv O'Neill, coordinator of the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition, talking to Claire Byrne this morning about a new report from the EPA that says Ireland will miss its emissions reduction targets by a wide margin unless we take pretty serious action pretty quickly. To mark his 60 years in showbiz and his Hot Press Lifetime Achievement Award, this afternoon's Live Line celebrated the great Brush Shields, who joined Joe Duffy in studio. What age are you when you started, Brush? You're born in Dublin, obviously. Yeah, I'm born in Dublin. But I, I'm, I, when I start playing, no, when I start getting gigs, which okay. is the best way of putting it, okay. I couldn't play when I got my first gigs. Couldn't, right. I couldn't play a note. But that would have been around 62, 63. Wow. You know, and the way I got the gig sixty gigs, years ago. Yeah, yeah, the way I got the gig is very simple. I was at the every day. I had to pass Cavendishes to listen to Peggy Dell singing. I had to be you because you were working in Aer Lingus as right. a fourteen-year-old messenger boy. Uh, and the post, the top place up there was Swiss Air plus Aer Lingus, where I had to put in a magazine for people to read while we were waiting to get served, as they say. Yeah. But anyway. I bought this guitar and amp that was eighteen pound eighteen, eighteen pound eighteen, three years to pay in Cavendishes. I brought it home. Now I live on the Fisber Road. This is the important part. Okay. Next door is a band called Jimmy Cooper and the Blue Shadows. Okay. 
20 yards up the road, Betty Ann and the team beats Mick Kinsley. The Royal Olympics, straight ahead, Tommy Quinn and the Quintets. I'm in the Cubs for years, and my two boys, Tony Bolan and Jim, they have started the Miami. There's nothing but music okay. and soccer right. on the Fisber Road. Okay. So I brought my guitar in for Jimmy to tune her up for me next hour. And Jimmy says, I have a gig for you. <laughs> I said, Jimmy, I says, I can't play. He says, I know that. He says, but there's a beautiful lady called Rose Twine and she doesn't care whether you can Rose play or not. Yeah. The lad that's in charge of the band, he drives it as well, he said to me. Okay. It's footers and plaster and it looks bad. Okay. You know, and he plays the accordion. I want you to go over to our house yeah. tomorrow over the, in Clontarf, which is a long way away, Joe, yeah, so yeah, yeah. from Fitzborough. So we'll go over and Rose is there and there's a little drummer and he's about 10 years old and he's a little waistcoat on. And she says, that's Desi Reynolds there. Wow. Desi Reynolds. Yeah, yeah. She says, this lad here, he's only at the coming out of our ten boys. Okay. And don't say too much to him because he's only at the finding out this afternoon. The pair of twins in there are really his brothers. Oh, my God. And all the years he was there, he's never doing that. This lad's name is Danny Ellis. Of course, Danny He's 17 Ellis. years old. He writes a great music for uh, many years. called later. 900 Voices. That's it. Incredible. So Danny's there with his trombone. Yeah. And he says, he says this is Paul. He's the oldest. And he sings uh, Pat Boone numbers like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. there's a gold mine in the sky. She says, all I want you to do is keep moving left and right, left and right. <laughs> I'm winking at all the young girls. <laughs> winking at all the girls. She didn't even say young. That's all you have to do. And Teddy, he'll be behind the curtain with the accordion and the skull mic. And uh, that's my first gig. So they wanted me for every gig after that. I said, we'd love to have you back. I never played a note. She said, no, he'll play it. And that's how I started. That's how you started. I haven't changed much. And only, only a few weeks ago, it's Hot Press, the legendary magazine, great magazine, uh, gave you a Lifetime Achievement Award. And we have the editor and founder of Hot Press, Niall Stokes, on the line. Niall, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. Uh, why, why did, why did Hot Press? I was going to say hello to Brendan there. Yeah, <laughs> Noel, as I said to Noel, Noel, once you get to seventy-seven, you should automatically get a lifetime achievement. It was. I'm very grateful that there was a bit of music involved. But, uh, tell, uh, tell us, Noel, why did, why did Hot Press decide to give out the prestigious lifetime achievement award to Brendan Francis Shields Brush? Because he's one of the greatest um, musical figures ever in this country. That's why. Wow. Um, I remember seeing uh, Skid Row very early on. I, I saw that the, the incarnation was Philip Linnett out front uh, in yeah. a place called CUS in Leeson Street. Right. Uh, I, you know, I, it's too long ago for me to remember exactly what year it was. But the band were absolutely phenomenal that night. Um, and, and part of it was, I mean, Gary Moore and, and on, 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 on guitar Sorry, yeah. and, and Brush on bass and Phil out front and, and Noel Bridgman in back. And uh, but it wasn't just you know Phil looked fantastic and sang sang really well, but overall the band looked like a proper rock and roll band. Wow. And each of the guys, Gary on the one side, Brush on the other side, uh, you know had a real presence about them, and they 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 were phenomenal musicians. Uh, and Brush is just that. I mean, he's talking about there not being able to play when he first uh, went <laughs> play, on stage, play. right? But but he, I tell you what, he could play a few years later. Um, 
and 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 Skid Row were an enormously important band. I mean, they, they became a power trio, if you like, uh, yeah. playing progressive music, um, and and they tried really ambitious things. They were signed in, internationally, and that showed the way for so many Irish uh, artists and bands who came afterwards. Um, and and you know, at every stage uh, of his of his career in music and and beyond. Bush has done fantastically interesting, brilliant things, um, and and you know I I think the contribution uh, overall that mm. Bush has made to Irish music is huge. Well said, well said. And Niall, what was the reaction you got when you were telling the like telling your pals or people were giving a lifetime achievement award to Bush Shields? Is he still alive? <laughs> <laughs> no, and no, the, the no, way no. you say it, Joe, is is he still alive? <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Niall. Yeah. No, look, I, I, I think there is a very uh, strong awareness uh, within Irish music and among Irish musicians, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that uh, first of all, we owe it to the pioneers. You know, there's, there's no way that, that we would have the level of uh, success that we have in, in music now if it hadn't been for the guys who came through and fought the, you know, the, the battle for rock and roll at a time when it was really, really tough. I mean, when 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 Bush started out, no one thought, "Oh, I'll 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 go to uh, a rock and roll school to learn about yeah, music." Yeah. You know, nobody thought, "Oh, yeah, you can have a great career in this." What people did was they made music because they were passionate and determined. Uh, you know, and, and 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 they fell in love with you know the 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 the, the great beast of rock and roll yeah, <laughs> and, and I know you presented uh, Brush on the Night with a fantastic piece by oh, the legendary David Rooney, David Rooney. Yeah. Well, well, Hot Press's Niall Stokes joining in the love for Brush Shields to celebrate his Hot Press Lifetime Achievement Award on this afternoon's Live Line The man Oliver Callan described as Ireland's best comedian, Tommy Tiernan, was up early this morning to join Oliver in studio for a bit of an old chat. And here's just some of what they spoke about. Creativity is a strange one. Sometimes when you try to be creative, it doesn't happen because you're trying to force it too much. So it's almost like you've got to do something uh, not very physically taxing, but something where you're uh, you're distracted, so walking or washing the dishes or something like that. You rest ahead. You're and you're you're because your your body is engaged with something. Um, your mind is free to wander. So I used to find that walking was good like that for me, you know. Um, and I'd come up with ideas for the show while I was walking, as opposed to sitting down with a, a notebook and a pen in a coffee shop and trying to force them. It's about doing something else, and then the ideas start to flow. But now I feel. I have days of very, very low stimulation. That's what I need. Maybe it's an age thing. I'm I'm 32 and I just find (laughs) that I just almost need safe, psychiatrically safe days. Okay, it's working out. So I kind of, you know, I might be in a hotel room for a whole day by myself, just face down on the pillow, (laughs) thinking or... Uh, so I don't, I don't. So that's I, not miserable. No, it's silence. not. It's cocooning because the, it, that's not the only shape part of the day. So you're, you're like that for a couple of hours. But in the evening, I mean, could you be more engaged with human beings than you are when you're on stage? Mm. You know, all your, uh, you're neurologically wide open for strangers. 
So it's just a balanced thing, I think, of... of uh, and as you get older, you get kind of... You, I know I go through different phases of what suits me now. And, you know, it used to... Like, going for plenty of pints used to suit me. Mm-hmm. Plenty. And that would, you know, that kind of... The sugar would still be in your body the next day. And did you... And you yeah. stopped You stopped drinking for a time, I stopped you? drinking for a good while. And it was... I really loved not drinking. Yeah. It was great. But I also now, I really love drinking. What was good about the not drinking part? It was nice to wake up with no hangovers. It was nice to uh, just have... When you're when you're back drinking, um, you know, sometimes you'd be thinking... I have to get up early for that so that means I can't go on the lash tonight mm-hmm. so but when you're not drinking you're just you're, you're ready for anything all the same time same the whole time and, did uh, you work more when you weren't drinking no I, I have an awful uh, I not often times but I love working yeah. I can't be not busy like two two or three days now and I feel as if I'm stuck in an airport do you know I just have to be um, so one thing things I discovered about Covid was that I'm I'm a, a natural hard worker so I, I, I do things. So now that would be the last way you would have described me if you were teaching me in school. <laughs> do you know? But I am a natural. But that's only because school was one specific kind of area no of the brain, it. isn't it? Yeah. 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 You know. But uh, the work, because you do a savage amount of work. Yeah, I do. Yeah. How, it's do natural you know how, though. It's effortless. Do you know how many shows of the Tomfoolery uh, show uh, tour that you've done? So we've been touring this since January of last year and it's probably been the biggest Irish tour that I've done. Uh, but that's in something. Yeah. Um, for a man who's done how many nights in Vicar Street? Uh, eight. <laughs> Hundred. <laughs> um, so I, I know I... I, I I'm, I'm meant to. I, I don't know. I, so I don't, sorry, I don't you like had the to tour. Nothing. You had the podcast going, which was the podcast, flying. and then we had the chat show, um, and then there was and Dairy Girls in the middle of it as well. So um, no, I love working, it's, and it's it doesn't feel like work to me. It uh-huh. just feels like uh, like do you want know, do the way kids are busy? You know, when Laura's growing up, anyway, you're just busy kicking balls or playing tennis or doing you know. And it's, I've brought the same thing to adulthood. I love being busy. Yeah. It's easy. Uh, is there a favourite part of it? Because the acting will be very mm. different to uh, on stage. You're constantly like it's a big. Now, are you you're going acting war. soon? I, I'm. I've agreed to do this. Um, and because you did a John B. Keane play, yeah, I did. Yeah, I'm the matchmaker in the Gaiety for okay. for five for five performances. Now you, you're going to have to age up. <laughs> can <laughs> you see? I'm trying you have to grow. Awful sweet looking face. Can you see my <laughs> pathetic looking stubble? <laughs> No, you have, you have uh, to grey up. Well, you know, some characters get haggard. I think because they were so yeah. desperate, they just said, "Oh no, he can do a couple of voices. Uh, we need that." Uh, don't standing don't for, be talking for yourself down now like that. <laughs> uh, the, I always find the the key to acting mm-hmm. is uh, the size of the gesture. So we're all acting all the time, anyway. Yeah. You wake up in the morning and you're yourself for about twenty seconds, <laughs> and then you have to act like a husband, and then you have to act like a father. And then you have to, you know, act like whatever. Uh, and so with acting, I always think it's, it's the size of the gesture. So there are, for example, when you're acting on television, you should never under any circumstances move your eyebrows. <laughs> really? The best actors, they never, they never, they're still wow. from there up. Um, okay. Never. It's an excellent tip. But in the gaiety, if you're doing a John B. Keane show... Oh. Oh, they'd be hopping. The I'd be big. Be hopping. Yeah. <laughs> that has to be big. Big arm gestures. And so if you get, the, I think that's, for me, it's always been the key. Just get the size of the gesture right. Which is why sometimes stand-up can work in a room. So you're talking to a thousand people and you're 
you know, you're in the John B phase of your sizes yeah. and you're giving it loads and you're talking loudly and you have the crowd with you. And then, but if that performance is filmed, it looks like, why is he shouting? That, that's yes, way yes. too big. You know, so it's, a, it's, they're two different things. They're so. matching the energy in the room, which is different to the energy of the person watching the, totally. the, the, the clips. Totally. Back. And the marquee is big, isn't it? Because you, you marquee kind of tend 4, to Marquee Yeah. So that's, um, again, I think that if you decide before you go on stage what you're going to do, I think you're screwed. So I'm at that phase now where you allow. So you just walk out and you let the room decide. Mm-hmm. So the, I was there last year um, and I loved it. And I, and I this, you walk out on stage. So it's like, you know, it's, I mean, it's a massive 4,000 is massive. Now, there are comedians in the States who do like 20,000 people a night. Yeah. Kevin Hart did 80,000 people in a football stadium in Philadelphia. You know, so 4,000 is big, but it's not, it's not the biggest crowd a stand-up could ever play to. Does it work? Because then it becomes like a stadium speech which has a different I loved kind of flow, it. doesn't it? Uh, uh, the marquee I love. I just, it's, it's, again, that the size of the performance is dictated by the crowd and that doesn't get decided until you stand in front of them. Mm-hmm. So you could avoid. There's no point in planning before you go, before you go on stage. You just wait, walk out, and then the pair of you get lifted. Hopefully, that's the dream. Do you write your shows? And the reason I'm asking this is because the last time I was in here, I was chatting to your sister Anne Tiernan, who's written oh, yeah. a great novel. Uh, the last. Oh, my sister show. Anne, the novelist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, we were both crediting you as a writer. But do you physically no. write anything? Anything down. <clears throat> so I write loads of I write loads of stuff. That's how I spend most of my time is writing down uh, phrases. Uh, very few of them make it onto the stage, uh, and I'm so in awe of Anne because I'm a talker, mm-hmm. and that's how I move through the world. Now, if you said that to my wife, she'd be shocked. <laughs> oh, you're a talker, really? You don't say much when you're at home, love. Um, but that's that's how I work. That's my kind of my uh, they're my instruments the words and stuff like that so for someone who's a writer like Anne is I'm so impressed by that ability to create an empire out of silence which is what Anne does goes into a room and in pure quiet writes it all down and builds this um, citadel of story that I'm much more stand-ups are much more obvious we're kind of uneducated. We're kind of, uh, we're side of the road boys. Mm-hmm. You know, we're pr- princes of the pavement. Jeez, we were, God, I, just, I didn't think I was ready for this at all, Oliver. I know. And the phrases are coming thick and fast. But- Tommy Tiernan talking this morning to Oliver Callan on the Ryan Turberley Show. Pies, eggs, milk. The use of food in political protest has a long history. And Graham Finlay, lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD, joined Claire Byrne this morning to talk about it. Where can we trace this back to? All the way back. You you see it in almost every society that peasants who are really vulnerable to to food scarcity... uh, taking it out, using food on, on people who they see as exploiting them or gouging them or, you know, the miller who's, who's overcharging them to mill their wheat and things like that. And 
it's it's a really interesting combination of actual violence to sort of defend their rights and humiliation and and fun. And so there's a lot of lighthearted moments when when food is abundant, where they make fun of their lords and their betters. But when things get scarce, they tend to 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 really incorporate a much more violent sort mm-hmm. of um, part of it, where they they put people on a rail or they, you know, they, they parade them through the town or they parade them through the town in effigy and they'll throw food at them or worse, you know, dead animals, awful, all kinds of stuff. And it's really interesting that the, the violence is really sort of controlled. There's a sort of rule against using rocks, for example, which might actually probably kill the, the, the recipient of, of the violence. And in a small community where everyone's known each other, this was a really, really powerful way of, of discouraging bad behavior. And, uh, and people often fled their communities, these better off people, never to return. And the other interesting thing is you'd think they'd conserve food and only use rotten food or something like that. But they actually very often wasted the food to, to show to maybe the, the abundance, yeah, that, that there, was, there was hoarding going on and the abundance that the, the miller had, for example. Now, we have some uh, examples for people to listen to. Here's a clip from 1977, which people might remember. This is Anita Bryant, which she was pied in the face by the gay rights activist Tom Higgins at a press conference in Iowa. Let's hear this. We tried to avoid it and went into a place called Norfolk, Virginia, and were met with protest and uh, um, all kinds of problems. And uh, uh, every... Oh, oh, oh. Security agent, security agent. No, no, let, let him stay. No. Let him stay. Well, at least stay. it's a fruit pie. <laughs> let's, pray, let's pray for him right now. Anita, right now. let's pray. Anita, why don't you pray? That's all right. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity of coming to Des Moines. And Father, I want to ask that you forgive him. That we love him. And that we love him. Okay, that's Anita Bryant uh, reacting in her own way to being pied in the face. And you grew up in Canada, uh, Graham. Pie throwing in politics at that time was a fairly regular affair, was it? Yeah, and actually the Anita Bryant one was really interesting because it was a fruit pie and she she's able to get a slurry in yeah. almost immediately because she's a seasoned performer, I guess. But a fruit pie might actually do some danger, whereas in Canada there was this whole humor movement, comic movement of people called Les Antartistes, and then maybe in slightly bad taste, Al-Qaeda, these groups calling themselves who were engaged in political pieing. And it really has its roots in, in the yippie movement in the United States um, because the yippies were big fans of early silent uh, comedies where thousands of pies would be used. You know, you think about singing in the rain, you get a great big custard pie in the face and then the three stooges and they decided they'd use that to humiliate political opponents. But it really reached a crescendo in Quebec about the time I was, you know, involved with politics there and uh, and, and everybody up to the prime minister was getting pied uh, by, by these organized pie, you know, throwing groups. Okay, so we have a, a moment from around that time. This is the former Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, but you can do that for me uh, in a moment. He was pied. Let's listen to this and then we'll chat about it. Old home week in Charlottetown for Jean Chrétien, one of those relaxing midsummer visits. Then it happened. A cream pie square in the face of the Prime Minister of Canada. As Jean Chrétien was ushered away in one direction, the cream pie assailant was whisked away by police, barking complaints about the state of affairs in the country. Minutes later, the Prime Minister re-emerged, all cleaned up, the presence of his security detail much more evident. 
but a bit late to undo the embarrassing, potentially dangerous security lapse. The Prime Minister did not want to talk about it. I don't talk, comment about it. No, no comment. You see, it does create that moment of excitement on the on the campaign trail. So you can understand why protesters use it as an effective tool, right? Yeah, you have, you have everything in there, really. Uh, Chrétien is immediately humiliated. He doesn't want to talk about it. Later that day, he's making jokes about it because he sort of recovered his his sense of himself mm-hmm. and, uh, and and wants to make light of what is, in, in the end, a not a very dangerous thing. Uh, you also see the evolution of pieing technique in that, in that the protesters now, you'd have to imagine this, but the protester walks right up to him and pushes it into his face. Now, while that is both safer for your target, it's also more accurate. So you see a, a lot more of that kind of thing. And you're going to get that comedy shot, aren't you? Yeah, you're going to get that comedy shot. And and you couldn't really credibly be accused of, of threatening or assaulting the figure. Um, but in fact, authorities, as you heard in that clip, take it very, very seriously. Yeah. There were a lot of questions asked about his security detail because, as people pointed out, it could have not been a pie. But people who are watching on always judge the reaction of the person who has been pied. And we're going to bring it home now to the Fine Gael leader at the time, Michael Noonan, back in 2002. He was pied. He was canvassing in Boyle in County Roscommon. Here's Cathy Halloran's news report. He'd just begun his walkabout when a young woman smashed a custard pie in his face. He retreated to his Fine Gael bus and emerged freshly dressed 15 minutes later, telling onlookers he could at least prove he had two suits. Uh, I presume it's an isolated incident. I don't think it's part of campaigning in any way whatsoever. Uh, I have no idea who threw it. Uh, the Gardaí spoke to me on the bus. They seem to have uh, some idea of the identity of the person. Uh, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the show goes on and there's a, a job to be done. And the canvas did continue with some more humorous remarks about the incident. I normally have my dessert after my trip. <laughs> Politically, is that the best way to react? Laugh it, it off? It probably is. Again, you know, uh, some some public figures have really been upset by it. And again, maybe it's the security angle. But uh, it is, as a politician, who who needs to, to show that they're, they're sort of a lighthearted person and don't take themselves too seriously. It's very, very important. And it's also, I think, part of the fact that we're not in a closed community where that kind of loss of status is going to persist and, and, and we really can't show our faces in public anymore. We're now in a more mediated, broader society where, in a way, even politicians are putting on a performance. And so laughs are the way to go. Graham Finley, lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD with tips on the best way to react if you get pied on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Ray Darcy decamped to Limerick today to catch up with Limerick Women's Shed. The two women who are the reason we're here are sitting in front of me, Sinead O'Byrne Bryn and Emer Scully. Good afternoon to you both. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> That's my radio voice. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, so ye formed Limerick Women's Shed, right? Yes. Now, what happened? Because it's vague with me. So you got on the phone for what reason? On, onto the radio. We rang you or you rang us? You rang us. Right, right. <laughs> and what did we say to you? You said, hello, Sinead. <laughs> right, OK, we don't need you all heard, the details. You heard about our open day that was going to be in Gary Owen. That's it. So myself and Emer got talking following the fact that I've been in the men's shed teaching yoga and feeling the atmosphere that they have. 
and I felt we needed the same for women, okay. just a place in the community to bring women together. So I got talking to Emer, who's the founder of Walking Buddies, and I'm involved in that with Emer, and she said, if you're serious about setting it up, I'm in. Brilliant. So we had an open day in Gary Owen a year ago, and over 400 women, we just put out the call to Limerick Women to see, is this something you'd like to do? And over 400 of you were crawling in the window, <laughs> dying to start. So today is officially your first birthday. It's our first, first birthday. birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday, us. You, Ben. Um, so you were out for a walk, Emer, were you, when you hatched this plan, this fiendish plan? We were, we yeah. were, yes. Um, I run Walking Buddies in Raheen, and that's where I met Sinead. So Sinead put, said it to me, and I said, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So how, we how are you feeling one year on about the whole thing? We're very, very proud. Yeah, yeah. absolutely very, very proud. Yeah. 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 You've loads of fans here at the 2E. We do, we do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have. No, great support. No, yeah, because support. I, like, uh, and I was talking to somebody earlier on, I won't mention her name, Rebecca, and she was saying, <laughs> she was saying that she, she, how are you, Rebecca, how are you doing? Uh, so uh, she was saying that she had done something similar and she was the train driver, but nobody was getting on the train. So you need a train driver, two of you in this case, and you need people to get on the train. So we have the train drivers and we have the passengers. Yay! Yay! Which is brilliant. So, hopes and dreams. I know you're still looking for a, a venue, um, but you feel very at home here in Munger GAA. We do. So, both Donal and Helen, to do with Munger Hall, have been so supportive from the first time we had a conversation with them. So, they allow us to come in here while we're waiting for a permanent home. Okay. But we are desperate to let all these fabulous women into a permanent location that we can make feminine with curtains and flowers. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine what we do if we had our own place? <laughs> <laughs> well, the furniture might be moved around a good yeah. bit, I'd say. Probably. Is that, uh, can I say that anymore? No, no, I can't. Yeah, you can. There's nods, nods of approval there, nods of approval. Now, you, so you have chats and you're sitting around a circle. Uh, so give us an example. Say, like, last, was it Tuesday, was it? What yeah. did you talk about last so Tuesday? last, well, the Tuesday before was even more interesting. But right. I'll do last Tuesday because I'll answer the question I was asked. <laughs> right. So D&M Garden Centre came to us and they did a demonstration on pots and gardening right. and shrubs and everything. And it was so popular, wasn't it? And he bought his van with them full of stock that right. they didn't even have to drive out to purchase okay. if they wanted right. to. But the Tuesday previous was our coffee and tea evening. Yeah. And we had such a laugh. So we never know what's going to happen and whatever subject comes up. So you're going to be talking to one of the main people from yeah. that later on. I'll hold it. I'll, I'll do... I'll... <laughs> I was trying to be all casual about the thing. And then you're giving away the secret. Giving away the secret. Mary, how are you? Where's Mary? There you are. Thank you. So, you're a member of the, the Women's Shed here. I am, yeah. yeah I'm uh, a new member. Okay. I'm only here about two months. Aha. Uh-huh. And you arrived at one of the Tuesday chat things in the jigs. Uh, and you brought up a topic, and the topic was? Uh, the topic was um, First Dates, Ireland. Okay. And I just, they basically didn't know me, I suppose I was quiet the first night, but it all changed the second night. <laughs> um, it's just that I've um, applied and got through the application process for it, so I'm looking for a man. Right, <laughs> okay. In a and, club. and so say all of us. <laughs> but you have very specific requirements when it comes to a man. I do. I'm looking for a biker with tattoos. Right. <laughs> How about piercings? Um, yeah, piercings. Right. And a big Harley Davidson. Right. Hair? No hair? No beard. No beard, lads. You're all out. <laughs> Look at those three lads over there. So you're anti-beard? Yeah, definitely. You're, you're beardist. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to say that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Harley Davidson... 
Tattoos, Tattoos. No beard. Right. Yeah. Okay. Big motorbike. Big motorbike, big right. Motorbike. So, so this is a big deal, isn't it? It's a big deal going on first dates. It is. It's, um, I think it's a fluke. Do you know, I didn't half fill up the application form, but they seem to like it. Yeah. There was an hour and ten minutes of an interview okay. after me working four night shifts and having five hours sleep. Um, so I was Where do you work? I work in the intensive care unit in UHL. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a difficult place to work, but a great place. And they're listening today, so I want to give a shout out to them. Great colleagues, great friends. So when it comes to a partner, you probably need somebody who's going to take your mind off that. Because stressful uh, yeah. enough. And that um, understand someone that works shift work. Because okay. I work 13 hour shifts, three right. days a week, and I do night shifts as well. Right. Okay. And, oh, yes, we kind to animals as well. Kind to animals. Okay, <laughs> right. We have a, we're getting a list here. Kind to animals. Right. Any particular type of animals? Is he, is he a dog man or a cat all man? Animals. Or, all animals. All, all animals. animals. All animals. Okay. okay. And a hard worker. A hard worker. Okay. That's it now. <laughs> now, now, I would normally be reticent about asking these questions, but you're going to go on national television if you're successful and say all these things, so I don't mind asking you. Yeah. So you will have to talk about your, your relationship history, won't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, online dating is a disaster. Is it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, wh- why so? I think it's for younger people. Mm. I think not for someone of my age. Um, and have you, you've tried? Yeah. yeah, ten dates, half them disasters. Right, the other half? Okay, right. all right. Yeah. yeah. A lot of ghosting. Right. Um, so you went on the first date, then nothing? Yeah, one fellow told me the cows and calves were more important than me. <laughs> I hope he's not listening. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a minefield. It feels like an interview every time, do you know? Right, so you sit down, you have a drink or a cup of coffee or yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's what you like, what do I like, and yes. you're trying to find middle ground. It's not really working. Mm. So but, I said I'd give the other thing a go then. But I, I think, in a way, that's not half bad in that you need to know immediately. You know, because you're at a stage in your life where you don't want hangers on you know, not at all no. no I know but I know but I mean you know what you want you know we know we, we know you know what you want we've established that haven't we yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so so you, you, you know that question thing isn't you know half bad I think it should be restricted to say half an hour first half hour you can ask questions and then just get on with the date yeah it's, it just feels like an interview every single right. time and you put effort into it and you go and dress up and more often than not it doesn't work right um, I think maybe men of a certain age are probably a little bit settled in their ways, or maybe I'm either too talkative, too independent, too straightforward, <laughs> and don't suffer fools. Ray Darcy talking to members of Limerick Women's Shed this afternoon. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, a look ahead to all the new movies and TV shows that are on our way over the next while. Claire Byrne was joined by producer-director Brian Redden and freelance journalist Aoife Barry. Here, they're discussing the new season of Netflix's Black Mirror. Four years since the last series and now we have a new season just announced for Netflix. Yeah, I don't know when it's going to... They're very, they're very mysterious about Black Mirror, you know, so it's on it's, in, it's on this month on Netflix, but they won't... They haven't actually said what date it's coming out, but it'll be definitely in June. So this is uh, season six, the much-anticipated season six, and again, it's very difficult even to know what, what's going to be in it, but if anyone's... Black Mirror, I think, is the best thing, the best thing on television in the last ten years. Now, have you seen it? Do you no. Like it? Don't, you've never seen I was going to say I'll, I'll fight you on that with succession but anyway we were just talking about succession outside I have issues with that but anyway we, what? But we, we won't get into this this is for another right? day yeah. this is for another day I started watching it with the subtitles on trying to figure out what the hell they're talking about I watch everything with subtitles on yeah. now because Same. I'm very old yeah, man. No, I just watch we'll it because I'm confused we blame it on the scriptwriters and not on our I know what are they saying 
In Black Mirror, well, Black Mirror's a bit of that as well. It's very hard to understand what's happening in Black Mirror sometimes as well because each story, so Black Mirror, for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's on season six now also there's a movie, but it's an anthology series. I suppose the best way to describe it, it's very much like what the Twilight Zone was back in the day. If you remember the Twilight Zone, every story is different. There isn't really any threads that run through yep. each story. They're standalone pieces so you can watch one episode and you get a good kick out of it. It's usually about technology. It's usually about technology going wrong. The Black Mirror in the title is your phone. So that's really what it's all about. It's about looking at your screen all the time. And how we spent our life looking at the black mirror, reflecting in the in the phone. So that's the theme of it. And the theme is that technology has gone, taken over our lives to a ridiculous extent. So each episode is very, very different. It's been created by a guy called Charlie, Charlie Brooker. They're dark. Um, sometimes they're quite sinister. Sometimes they're quite violent. In this new season, there's fantastic actors in it. Salma Hayek is in one. Uh, Rob Delaney's in another. Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad is in another one. Um, they're all very different. It's hard to know what they're about. The trailer is very, you know, it doesn't give too much away, mm-hmm. but it looks really intriguing. And okay. like based on what he's done before, like they're all on Netflix now, so I highly recommend going back and going watching back and them. Looking at them. Short enough, they're under an air, they're all very different, really unique okay. series. But as for the new season, we don't know when it's coming out, apart from the fact that it's this month, it's and we don't know what June. it's about, but we think it'll, it'll be good. I don't know when it's coming June, out, I don't know what it's about, said. don't know anything about it. 17th of June, we've just found 17th that 17th of June. There, there we go, but we still don't know what it's about, but it's likely <laughs> to be good. That's Black Mirror. Now Aoife, back to the big the big screen, um, this is everyone's favourite quirky filmmaker, Wes Anderson. This is Asteroid City. Let's take a listen. Are you married? I'm a widower, but don't tell my kids. You're saying her mother died three weeks ago. Let's say she's in heaven, which doesn't exist for me, of course, but you're Episcopalian. In my loneliness, I learned to give complete and unquestioning faith to the people I love. I don't know if that includes you, but it included my daughter and your four children. Sometimes I think I feel more at home outside the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, wow. Me too. They're strange, aren't they? They're children. Compared to normal people. Yes, that's correct. It's true. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. All I know about this is there's a lot about it on TikTok with people making Wes Anderson style videos. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to bring going to bring up. If you've seen any of those yeah. TikToks or reels where people pretend that they're making Wes Anderson videos because he's such a distinct style. I really love his framing. So everything in the frame is always just perfectly placed. The mise-en-scene is amazing. The colours are unreal. And because of that, he's kind of easy to copy in, in one way, you know, on TikTok because you can see what he does and try and replicate it. You'll never get to be as good as he is. But this particular film, Asteroid City, looks as luscious and beautiful as any of his other works. Um, what's really interesting about it, though, is that it's set in 1955. It's about a group of young students and parents who gather in this fictional American desert town for a junior stargazer convention. That's what we were told when the first trailer came out. But as the reviews from Cannes have come out, it actually turns out, as one reviewer calls it, it's a film about a TV show about a play within a play. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this film, which is very <laughs> Wes Anderson. And the themes in it are very familiar to uh, you know anybody who's watched his other work. There's grief, there's family. Um, there's a widower played by Jason Schwartzman who's trying to figure out how to tell his parents that their mother has passed away. So it's quite dark stuff happening in it. But then there's a lot of kind of light interactions between the other characters. And maybe he falls in love with Scarlett Johansson's character. That seems to be a bit of something that goes on there. So I think if you're someone who finds his style a little bit twee, I mean, you're, not, you're going to get something that you probably don't like here. But if you're someone like myself who just loves how he makes films and all the attention to detail, Asteroid City, City looks like yet another step up for him in his career. Okay, and that's out in cinemas on the 23rd of June. Now we're going back to Netflix for you, uh, Brian. This is a three-part documentary chronicling the career of everyone's favourite bodybuilder turned action film star, turned California go- governor. It's Arnold. I sold myself on that stage. Ladies and gentlemen, Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
thousands of people screaming, Arnold, Arnold, Arnold. And when you visualize something very clearly, you believe that you 100% can get there. There was a lot of things they had to learn, obstacles that they had to overcome. You can get an injury, then all the athletic stuff is over. But the only thing that no one can take from you is your mind. I think I'd like this, despite myself. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? Like, you see what the trailer, it sounds a bit gung-ho and you can yeah. do whatever you want, just overcome the adversity and all this. And you think, oh, jeez, do I need to listen to that for three hours? But actually, you know, it's really good because Arnold, you know, uh, like like him or absolutely hate him. He's had an amazing career and he has overcome an awful lot of stuff to get where he was. Like, first of all, he arrives, he's a bodybuilder, obviously. So he's Mr. World, Mr. Universe, all of these titles. He arrives in America. He can't even speak English when he arrives in America. Like, he can't even speak English. And within... 10 years, he's the number one box office star in the world. Then goes on to become one of the most popular, you know, governors that California ever had. He's a Republican governor, but, you know, he's got very kind of democratic sensibilities, you know. So, like, his his career has been absolutely amazing. Um, What's interesting about this is, He's not just blowing his own trumpet because he has a bit of darkness there. Like his father was a member of the Nazi party in, in Austria, you know, and he doesn't shy away from that. Mm-hmm. He also was accused of lots of steroid abuse. He doesn't shy away from that. He's a serial womanizer. He doesn't shy away from that. His marriage fell apart after he had an affair with his housekeeper. He doesn't shy away from that. So he deals with all of these things in the document. You think, like he produces himself, so you think that he would leave all the dark stuff and all the nasty stuff to one side. But in fact, he doesn't. He mm-hmm. embraces it and does talk about it quite openly and quite honestly. So I think that's what makes it quite Dearing, you know, um, he's such a terrible actor. Like I was, he's in this new, he's in this new <laughs> series now called Fubar. Yeah. Oh my god, he's atrocious in it, yeah. and he's trying to do comedy in it. It's just. It's unbelievable. I couldn't Literally, watch, like I couldn't watching watch a piece of furniture. I couldn't watch that, but I p- could probably watch. Yeah, but the it's, it's really interesting because, like, and he's an interesting guy. You see all his stuff on online now on 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 Twitter and on Facebook where he's talking about you know uh, the war in Ukraine and like he's he's really a, he's a really powerful, in- interesting individual. He's got very interesting ideas, and like I say, he doesn't shy away from the nasty stuff in his life. Yeah. He talks about it and he says, "I'm not perfect. This is what I am." Okay. Brian Redden, Aoife Barry and Claire Byrne discussing Arnold and other new titles streaming our way in the near future on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time on Tuesday. Probably. Until the next time, from me though, thank you for listening. And good luck.